will burn out and you will burn out spectacularly and you will therefore be unable to make any change because you won't be able to get out of bed. And so what does that then mean? So I, I think a lot of it comes down to, um, you know, I really think that my work is rooted. I try to work. Um, I, I try to root my work and ground it always in compassion, but that doesn't only mean compassion for others. It also means compassion for self. And I think that in any type of human rights or public interest field, wellness is really important. And it's something that people should be considering how they plan on integrating it into their daily lives. I'm wondering, so the Nobel Prize winning economist, Esther Duflo, she has said publicly that the effect of low-skilled migration on low-skilled wages is zero. And I'm wondering how much do you think the antipathy towards migrants how much do you think that stems from ignorance and or how much do you think it stems from a lack of empathy it's a great question the way that i i look at it is that this is part two with steven damianos statistics show and imply that approximately 1% of the global population is displaced. And there are two different ways of looking at it. One is through the lens of a crisis narrative, which says, well, this is a crisis. Look at 1% of the world, it is forcibly displaced. And that's the narrative that we're peddled. And of course, whenever we're peddled a narrative, you need to think of you know who benefits, who is giving it to us. But anyway... The other way of looking at it is saying, yes, 1% of the world may, de- may be displaced, but 99% is not. And 99% of the world can therefore support that 1%. And of course, there's some, some questionable logic there. Economists would come swimming, swinging at me and say, well, 99% of the world, not everyone within that is evenly d- distributed economically. Not everyone has the equal resources and ability to support people. And yes, that's true, but I'm really just speaking broadly to make a point that We don't actually have a crisis of capacity. We have a crisis of compassion. And people simply will not or cannot bring themselves to care. And when it comes to the employment of refugees, it absolutely blows my mind. Because article after article, scholarship after scholarship, Nobel Peace Prize winner after Nobel Peace Prize winner, you know, the top minds of our time say again and again, refugees do not take away from economies, they actually benefit and invigorate and help grow markets. And this is really frustrating for me because I have these conversations with people and they just say, well, no, someone's going to take my job or no, you know, this person won't perform well. And there is a lack of compassion and with it comes a lack of interest in evidence and in evidence-based solutions and in facts and so it's really frustrating for me to have those conversations and to think of the people that I know who you know when I left Greece I would ask my clients at the NGO I was working at you know what is it that you want most in the world and 
they didn't say I want to go back home I want or they didn't say you know I want a lot of money they said I want to have a job and what that was rooted in was I want to feel useful I want to contribute I want to not waste away and so when I speak to people who just ground their arguments in absolutely nothing except for ignorance and fear it's really frustrating for me because i think you know that at the exact time that we were having this conversation there is someone who wants a job and who is incredibly skilled and if they don't have the skills they can learn them and they are not being allowed to even almost access that space and have that opportunity it's maddening to me it's really frustrating and so i think it comes down to again remembering that there are humans at the root of this issue and when we talk about economies and about markets we think about numbers and we think about money and we get distracted from the fact that it's actually people who are driving these economies and it's people that we're talking about people with mothers and fathers and with hearts and with heartbreaks and with you know first loves first kisses with dreams and desires who have no difference from us other than that we were born where and how and who we are and they were born where and how and who they are and that there's a fundamental difference there that gave us a certain life and gave them a certain life and those two lives are incredibly opposite for no reason other than the birth lottery that we won and they lost even there's research you know researchers at U Chicago and Princeton they were researching scarcity mindset and you know in society there's this perception that people who I even had a similar conversation I believe with another Rhodes winner and you know a previous episode but there's this perception you know we were talking about this perception that people who are poor it's because they haven't worked hard enough we somehow as a group find a way to assign some blame to them like there must be something about them that's the cause of why they are where they are and the the findings from this research are novel um some could say revolutionary because they discovered these researchers that when you are in poverty so they have this term called cognitive bandwidth or mental bandwidth and basically living in poverty being in poverty detracts from that bandwidth such that you are not able to such that your decision making and your effect on your world is not the same as someone who doesn't live in poverty because some of your mindset is constantly or on a regular basis reserved for the issues of where am i going to get more money where am i from where am I going to get more money? For how am I going to pay the bills? How am I going to, you know, make rent? How am I going to feed my children? There's not been food for days. Like, how am I going to find water? Like, your mind has to think about those questions. And because your mind is thinking about those questions, it can't, It you're, it's a limited resource, right? Like, it's not infinite. Your cognition is not infinite. And so because it's finite, some of that energy is being constantly detracted to the issues that come with being in a state of almost nothing, right? Or nothing, poverty. Um, and so your ability to make decisions and affect the world around you is not the same as someone who has enough to live and to survive, right? Not even um, comfortable living, just to like survive 
in a in a in a humane way um and so i bring up that research because you know the people who who heard this some of them at least their speculation is that this research could have profound implications for policy because some policy the implication of it is the onus is on you i know you're poor and you're living in poverty but if you want us our services to help you get out of it you like we're putting some amount of weight some amount of responsibility on you and this research implies well we should be more compassionate and more generous not that no responsibility should be with them but we should come at it from the perspective of they may simply not have the ability right now in their current state to think about the situation and to respond to it in a way they would if they had at least enough to survive but you have to start in the circle you have to start at the point of okay let's give them enough first and then work on the questions of how we're going to get to a um you know a more advanced state let's not start at the point of well i know you don't have this and that but let's like start fixing that now despite are not having addressed the fact that you don't have this or that right um and so you know it has implications in that policy could become more compassionate or more you know considerate of of the reality of of the human you know mind i agree i agree entirely and it's it's even important to recognize how often you know even further beyond the way or the place in which we were born, how many of the opportunities that we were given afterwards were arbitrary. And in terms of like, I, I think, I think that increasingly about, you know, admission to certain colleges or, um, you know, access to certain scholarships, you know, maybe someone didn't like the tie you wore that day. And so they didn't pick you and they picked someone else or that, you know, there are so many factors that go into things. And increasingly I feel like so many things are a crapshoot. And so, when you think of a meritocracy or when you look at a resume, I think it's important to really look critically at how much weight we're putting on certain things. And, you know, really, really thinking about, yes, I'm, you know, I'm sure that, you know, a very accomplished person deserves their honors and awards, but also how many just as deserving people were excluded from those spaces, either by arbitrary measures or by structural bias, you know, who knows? So yes, I'm not saying this to erase, you know, your efforts or my efforts. I'm not saying this to be self-effacing, but a lot of it is what's behind the screen, right? It's the code behind the app. You know, we mentioned how some of this anti-migrant sentiment is rooted in ignorance or and or fear. There's research that shows that simply presenting facts to someone is not enough to change their mind. It's more likely they'll change their mind if you change how they're feeling first. Um, and if you can change how they're feeling, they can become more receptive to what you're saying. How much do you think this idea plays into what you've heard about refugees? No, it's, it's, it's a good point. And, you know, just the other day, it was actually the day after I landed back from London for the, the winter holiday, I was with my family and we were getting a Christmas tree. And we were speaking with 
the people who own the Christmas tree farm are local to New Hampshire and you know one of the women was asking me about what I do and what my, my goals and interests are and I was telling her and she was saying oh well you know refugees really change culture and I was trying to explain actually that you know the argument of culture to me does not hold water it's it's culture changes culture is dynamic and actually it should change because many aspects of culture are very problematic I mean if 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 you spoke to someone many you know a hundred something you know however many hundred years ago in the United States and they said oh well you know slavery is part of our, our culture you know would you now look back at that and say oh well we shouldn't change culture the point is that whenever I speak with someone who seems to express either anti-immigrant, anti-refugee, xenophobic sentiments, or at least even just a baseline of apathy towards the matter. Maybe someone who doesn't have negative sentiments, but who just also doesn't really seem to care. I, I want to ask, how many refugees do you personally know? And I have asked that in many spaces. And I've asked that even in spaces of people with power and influence, people who have a real say over policy and over decisions that would impact real people's lives. And I'm always frustrated and shocked to see that no hands raised. And I look around at a table of people who are making decisions and making claims about an entire group of people that they've never met. And so, yeah, how do we move forward from that? Because it's the same as looking at, you know, so someone who lives in, you know, a small rural town in, say, northern New Hampshire who has never really met a person of color because New Hampshire is 90 whatever percent white. And so therefore their perceptions of that race of people comes only from the media that they've been fed. And so I think it's really important to step back from that and I'm not exactly sure how I'm going to approach this in my career but part of my mandate in life I think is increasingly going to be to bring refugees into spaces that they have not been afforded access to previously whether that be physically by helping someone you know get legal status into a country or whether that be by elevating someone's voice in an academic circle it hasn't previously been, or by mainstreaming refugee and human rights issues into political discourse and into the Democratic Party platform. So at the behest of Skype, I have to interrupt this broadcast every 15 minutes at 15 minute intervals. To remind you that the software used for this conversation is brought to you by Skype. Uh, I should also mention that Skivio seeks to undermine the status quo and render the pursuit of higher ed equitable for all. Or at least it once did.
how do you discover that about which you're passionate? And can you have co-passions? Is that really possible? Maybe it is because you can have more than one passion that you're pursuing or, or would like to pursue. And the reason there's that multiplicity, that plurality, is because each of those passions reflects the same underlying affinity that you have towards something. Um, so this interruption became a bit more stream of consciousness. Um, initially, it started out as the fulfillment <laughs> of a of a legal, technically, order. Then it changed to, well, I should plug Skivio if I have to plug Skype. And then it evolved into this deeper, almost existential, if not directly existential, question about how does one decide what to pursue? Which, honestly, this is coming full circle because is that not the purpose of Skivio Radio, right? I've interviewed people from a range of backgrounds and you find that I consistently ask about whether the path they're currently on was one they imagined they would embark upon, right? If this path that they're on now, is it something that they knew from a young age, from earlier in life, from whatever point, whatever previous point that they we're being called to, right? <laughs> if we're going to invoke a sense of destiny. Or is it really just the reflection of their wanting to change, right? There's nothing deeper. It wasn't um, from a historical or, or childhood, you know, fantasy about what, what I want to be, you know, before I'm 30, because apparently uh, there's a deadline that's, that's quite ageist, right? You know, uh, how many authors and writers only wrote their first book, you know, at, when they were 50 or 60, in their 50s, in their 60s, right? How many great things were accomplished by humankind from people who were in middle age or older? So I honestly don't know where this deadline comes from. Thank you for sticking with me through yet another digression and I return you back to my programming and this conversation. And follow Skivio on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, Facebook, Skivio is active, so you can follow us there as well. But um, there it would only be a show of support. <laughs> it wouldn't be to receive any information um, or content or resources because I'm very big on that or something like that I don't know exactly how it will play out but as long as the people in power have never met refugees then refugee issues and concerns will not be a priority for them it's the same way that I think about 
you know, when will Republicans and Republican lawmakers start acting on gun reform? It's it's just when these things are not forced in front of your face and when they have always seemed like a distant other affecting people who are not you, why and how would they become priorities? And so I think it's really important for me to consider how I can alter that paradigm. I really believe that one of the greatest blessings of my life was my ability and opportunity to meet refugees in person. And that's an opportunity that continues to grow as I continue in this space and continue to meet these people and hear their stories and learn from them. And I think that Brian Stevenson, the prolific and incredibly inspirational civil rights lawyer spoke at my college graduation and he said a line that really stuck with me, which was that the most important things that we could do as recent graduates and onward is to keep ourselves proximate to suffering and to see people who are struggling in ways that we are not. And I think that if we don't do that, then there will be no empathy and there will be no impetus to actually change. Yeah, I remember J.K. Rowling said at a Harvard commencement, and she was saying, you know, there was a line in her speech. In her address, she was saying how human beings are unlike other creatures. And it's interesting, right? That's a clear point. But then she says, we have the ability to imagine ourselves into other places into others places she didn't say those exact words the point she was making is like it's interesting that we're different from animals in that way we don't have to be for example right we don't have to be the victim of violence to like mentalize to imagine to perform that mental simulation of what it's like to be that person we hear or we see or that someone told us is a victim of violence. Like, we can imagine ourselves into their place. We don't have to be physically experiencing it. Whereas animals, you know, they physically experience their reality. I'm imagining their imagination is not as broad and as vivid as ours is, but some people actually tap into that. They don't have to be physically experiencing it. Displacement or poverty or violence. And this may not even be an imagination problem, or an ignorance problem, but a loneliness problem. Even Vivek Murthy, the 19th Surgeon General of the United States, called loneliness one of the most significant threats to our health. The figures regarding loneliness are historically unprecedented. You know, it's skyrocketed. It's a crisis, not only in this country. Loneliness is now part of this heavily used phrase, the loneliness epidemic. Even research shows that the size of the group of people who support you And not that person you've never met who's on Tumblr, but the person or people who you would actually go to for support in the event of a serious issue. The size of this group is correlated with perspective taking, i.e. the ability to imagine yourself into another's place and see the world from their point of view. Final question I wanted to ask you is, can you give a specific example of a refugee that you've met and how they've affected you? Hmm. It's a good question. I am. Yeah, sure. I, I, I can tell you a bit about someone who is really inspirational to me. I'm not going to share his name out of uh, right, right. respect for his confidentiality, but there's one, one of my 
friends in, in, in Greece who I, who is very dear to my heart. I met last summer and he's a bit older than me and he's from Afghanistan and he might just be the smartest person I know. He speaks eight languages and he's taught many of them to himself. I think he speaks Arabic, Pashto, Urdu, Farsi. Uh, he's learning Greek now. He, I mean, it, it's, it's just absurd. And he, you know, had an advanced degree and he was working towards another advanced degree before he was ripped out of his country. And now he can't even, you know, get a job in anything in Greece. And this is someone who I think is more qualified and more capable than I am. And so, you know, he's someone who really inspires me because I, I look at how he has struggled and how he continues to shine. Every time I see him, you know, he, he we had a very small office in Greece and he would jump up from his seat so that I had a seat to sit in and he would run over to pour me a glass of water and he just shone with such brilliance and love and light. And I, I wonder sometimes if I had gone through so much trauma, if I would be able to do that and to have that as well, or if I would just have a constant cloud over, over myself. And I think that's really quite characteristic of almost all of the refugees that I have the pleasure and honor of knowing is that they their kindness and optimism abounds. And these are people who have been abused in just unspeakable and innumerable ways. And yet they have hope for the future. And you know, I think of the days where I wake up and my alarm goes off and I'm annoyed that I have to get out of bed or I'm annoyed that I have a deadline coming up or, you know, I feel like the world is out to get me. And then, you know, I think of these people who, you know, they've been pushed out of their country. Many of them have been su subjected to sexual and gender-based violence, sexual assault, forced sex, sex work, um, discrimination, police brutality, all these things. And at the end of the day, they see me walk into the office and they jump up with a smile and they say, hello, how are you? And they actually care about the answer. And, it, you know, that is what keeps me going. It's those people who make me want to be a better version of myself and who give me a reason to continue on in this work. And they are constant inspiration to me. And I think it's 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 really just, you know, the honor of a lifetime that I've been able to to you know, in this crazy, busy, bustling world that my work, that, you know, my universe has clashed with theirs and that we have been able to cross paths. It's, it's, it's been, it's been life-changing for me. And I'm really excited to see how that continues to evolve. Are there any last words you'd like to share? I would just say that, I would say a few things. One is that Issues of migration and human rights are issues that require intense investment and also vast, strong, and diverse coalitions. And I unfortunately don't know that many young people who are engaging in them. And I don't know why that is, but I think that it's really important to start changing that and to start inviting people, inviting everyone into the fold, because this is something that affects all of us. And it's an avenue where everyone, regardless of your background, regardless of your skills, regardless of anything, you can have measurable impact within it. So 
I really hope that people, whether by listening to this or by you know watching the news, are moved towards action. And even if it's not, you know, action within migration, action within making the world better in some tiny way. I think it's so overwhelming to think about, you know, how can I, one small, tiny, insignificant person, change the world? And you know, I would hope that we can reframe that to not changing the world but changing someone's world and that as a result you do change the world and you change small worlds that you exist in and it creates a ripple effect that just can be felt over the entire globe and so I would really encourage people to get involved in whatever issue gets them out of bed in the morning and if it's issues of migration, human rights, vulnerability, exploitation, anything like that, um, please reach out to me. I would love to talk about my experience, your experiences, and you know, start doing this together. You can find something remarkable about this guest by swiping up, at least in Apple Podcasts.